Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading I Needed a Neighbor by Patricia Sandin with permission of Scripture Union Publications, and we are on Chapter 12. Tikla did not die. His rash faded and the fever abated, leaving him thin, frail as a shadow, but ready to start again on the long climb to health and strength. But in spite of the extra food and care that a group of exhausted yet dedicated young workers could give to 75,000 needy people, the camp was no place to start that climb. The heat was increasing and the water supply sinking. The pools in the riverbed were nearly dry and the greenery on the banks had faded. Many of the flimsy shelters had fallen to pieces and there was nothing left with which to repair them. Then suddenly the news circulated. They were opening another camp to the north and many would leave. Some were glad and some were sorry, but there was little time for speculation. That very afternoon, 40 open trucks were parked at the west of the riverbed, and families numbering 1,600 people were told to pack their belongings and be ready to leave at sunset. Thousands gathered around to wave goodbye and to watch them mount the trucks. They huddled rather pathetically, clutching their babies, their bundles of clothing, their plastic water bottles and cooking pots. But the children were excited, for it was an adventure to be riding north through the night, and it might always be better further on. They shouted and cheered as the trucks rolled off into the dusk, and the crowds on the riverbank went quietly back to their shelters, wondering. Almost every night the trucks arrived, and those selected would pack up and go without protest. Merritt waited with the others, for waiting had become a way of life, and there was nothing else to do once she had fetched the water and baked Angera. She sat in the shade, nursing her and amusing the floppy little Tikla, and waited in hope for the coolness of the evening. They slept early, exhausted by the heat, woke early, awaiting in dread for the sun to rise. Even her uncle Gabriel no longer visited him, for he had been taken off a week before the first convoy left to work as an orderly in the new camp. Then one morning the summons came. Merritt and Tikla and all those in the area of the shelters were to be ready to leave by sunset. On the whole, she was glad. They would not be traveling alone. The priest and his wife and Kiros's parents would be coming with them. Maybe they could stay together in the new camp. She left Tikla under a tree and went to collect her rations of sorghum and beans and oil. Then she made a bundle of their clothes and food and sat down to wait again. They slept through the afternoon, and when the shadows of the trees grew longer, she tied the bundle, the goatskin, the cooking pot, and utensils on her back, took Tikla by his hand, and they all started off together. The old priest's wife mumbling and crying a little because having, having reached the end of her journey, she had settled down quite contentedly to wait for death in the shade, and she had not wished to be disturbed. The truck stood waiting, and they climbed aboard, lifting the children and helping the old. There were 40 of them to a vehicle and no room to lie down, but most could sit and no one complained. Once again, the children laughed and waved, but the adults sat quietly, their faces stamped with the age-old patience of a refugee who waits with dull acceptance for the winds of fate to blow him where they will. It was almost night when the gears ground and the trucks shuddered onto the road, one behind the other. The men and the children crowded to the parapet to wave a last goodbye, and then they were off, westward toward the crimson streaks in the darkening sky. Everyone fell silent, because the rattling of the wheels and the jolting of the rough desert roads made conversation impossible. The children soon fell asleep and the rest clung to each other and dozed as they might. 
The noisy, bone-shaking hours passed somehow, and at about three o'clock in the morning, the convoy halted at some long sheds. The passengers were given food and water and allowed to dismount and stretch their cramped legs. It was bright moonlight by now, and the air was fresh, and the orderlies were kind. Only another two hours, they said, and you will arrive at the camp. The trucks had turned northeast, and the tired travelers watched the morning steal in over the vast desert expanses around them. Great stretches of dry earth, broken only by the stunted bushes of the shriveling caucus of a camel or a cow. There were no shady trees here, and even the road had given way to desert track. But the fear that gripped them lessened as they came into sight of a line of trees, clear against the morning. Many stood up and leaned on the parapet to watch, for there was a green haze over the land. Then there were clusters of small gardens in a, a low grassy area where sheep and gra- goats grazed among the streams. And then they saw the great dam and the glimmering reservoir, and some let out a cheer, for surely here in this favored spot the water would not fail. They crossed the great dam and rattled on eastward against the, the desert again. The trucks were speeding up now, and almost everyone was standing, shading their eyes, enjoying the life-giving breeze. The camp loomed ahead of them, row upon row, of tents stretching, as so it seemed, to the far horizon, and right in the middle of them, lines of shelters, straw matting fixed on poles, and people, endless people. The trucks took a curve at a speed that sent them flying into each other's arms, and then drew up in orderly formation in the front of the shelters. They had arrived. People were running towards them, their own people dressed in clean white shirts and foreign girls in cotton slacks and blouses. Merritt realized they were searching the trucks for the sick and the aged or anyone who might need swift attention. She did not know that it was not always possible to screen such a large number at the start, and sometimes only speedy action would avert tragedy. Sometimes it was too late. A baby had been born in the truck one night, and the young mother had died, arriving with her little family clinging to her dead body. There were frail children who had barely survived the jogging and jostling, and they were hurried off to be cared for. The rest got down from the truck and were escorted to a shelter where they settled down to wait. But the children, seeing the kindness, rushed to shake hands by the dozen, smiling up at their hostesses, their eyes shining in their thin, brave young faces. They waited for a long time in the shelter. Mugs of milk and biscuits were served, and they were called in by families to be registered and examined, and the children were weighed and measured. The white ladies seemed quite unable to pronounce their names or to understand what they said, but there were plenty of their own people to interpret. The long, slow hours passed, and the crowds grew thicker, and the thermometer in the tent registered 120 degrees, but no one showed any impatience, and no one became irritable. They had learned to wait. It was their way of life. Tikla was weighed and measured, but this time he was too tired to protest and hung passively on the hook. The nurse in charge consulted a brightly colored chart, shook her head, and said he must go to the feeding center. Merritt picked him up, and it was somehow pushed ahead, tripping over the bundles, stepping over the babies until they reached another shelter, darker with matting around the walls and tiny pricks of sunlight piercing the rush roof and dappling the groups that sat below. It was all just as it had been before. The patient mothers, the starved little children, the cheerful bright orange mugs, and the groups around the cauldron. Only one thing was different. The foreign girl sat with a baby in her arms, and alone among the brown rags and faded blankets, 
This baby was dressed in a rainbow-colored vest and was wrapped in a bright red and blue blanket, an amazing focus of color in those drab, colorless surroundings. Merritt watched and fascinated, while Tikla devoured porridge and laid down to sleep. Is the child of rich, noble parents that they dress like that? She asked of the orderly who squatted close to them, feeding a baby with a nasal tube. He smiled. Oh, no, he replied. It's a baby who arrived in the truck this morning. See his mother sitting near. Emma has dressed it like that to warm it because it's cold and dying. She is feeding it with a tube. It's too weak to swallow. They sat for some time, mothers dozed be- beside sleeping children, pillowing their heads on their bundles. After two hours, they would feed the children again, and then they would go to their tents. Merritt dozed and then woke and stared at the bright little figure and at the nurse who sat crooning over it, feeding it drop by drop. Suddenly something happened. The baby gave a little gurgle. The nurse tensed and glanced at the woman sleeping beside her. Another foreign nurse came over and they both remained as though frozen, staring down. Neither spoke nor seemed to breathe. They leaned over together, talking quietly. Then the second nurse pulled the tube from the baby's nose, took off its beautiful clothes and handed it back to its mother, who started to wail softly. The younger nurse turned away abruptly, the tears pouring down her cheeks. But why does she cry like that? asked Merritt, puzzled. Surely it must be her own child. The orderly who was distributing milk glanced across. No, he answered. It is as I told you. It was a child who arrived in the truck this morning. It has just died. And tomorrow we will read chapter 13. I love you. I'm praying for you. And we'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye.